Hi everyone, my name is Mare Verk and welcome to Life on the Farm. So I think I'm going to go ahead and start off this first segment talking about what my week off looked like and where I think I left off last time was talking about me looking at all of the guidelines and paperwork and whatnot that my ICU preceptor had sent me previously before my week off had even started. And so I was using that first weekend to get a jump start looking at all of that. And I was like, yeah, I got this plenty of time, right? Except I got a reminder email about registering for the Loma Linda Southern California Residency Showcase. And when I took a little bit of a closer look, I realized that a lot of the places I was considering applying to were actually going to be attending. And so I suddenly now needed to register for that, update my CV, which I had already planned to do anyway, and then start preparing my master list of residencies and compiling all that information. So I'll talk about that in a second. But basically the way that that works is you go online and you register to make this account. I think it's on this app or website called Brazen. And so you put all your information in and it even offers you the spot to put in your resume as well as your LinkedIn. So again, another really good reason to have your LinkedIn up to date as well as your resume because you never know when you're just going to need to put one up. And so what I do every time is that I go onto my Google Docs. So I leave it my resume online and I download it and I edit it so that it's up to date with where I am currently because the one that I keep a running tab on basically includes all of my future rotations, the dates put in for that, a spot for my ASHP match ID number, but I don't need all of those things at this current moment. So then I download it, I take all of those things out and then that's what I use to upload. And from there you just register for both days. It was very easy, very straightforward. And then actually at that point is when I started to compile my master list of residencies. And so during my first off block prior to my hospital operations rotation, I had made a preliminary list of all of the places I was considering. And so some are in California, some are out of state. It really just depends. Uh, They vary too as far as what I'm looking for. But I had a list on paper and it was kind of like just showed me what PGY1s they had available, PGY2s if it was applicable. Uh, In addition to PGY2s, I was interested in moving forward, but that's definitely way out of the scope of where I needed to look right now as far as specific PGY2s. Um, But I hadn't sat down and really created a master list with how many residents each program takes, what their core electives are, what electives they offer, what are the standard baseline rotations that you have to fulfill. Do they offer a teaching credential? What does their hospital look like? What type of care? So is it tertiary, secondary, primary care center? Does it have an ED? How many beds does it have? Um, What types of specialties do they partake in? And so I had never really sat down and created that list for myself to see what I was truly going to look at specifically for each place. And so I finally did that. I have this huge running Excel sheet and It served me well because although it took me a whole day to make, um, when it came to attending the residency showcase, it definitely helped for me to put an additional column to see who I talked to, what we talked about, um, their contact info and whatnot. So it's a really great centralized place for me to gather my thoughts, jot down um, all the important information that I gather because with however many residencies you choose to apply to, you're going to have 
all of this information floating in your head. And so it's really good to have this place where you have it all written down. Because even a couple hours after the showcase, I remember I couldn't remember what I talked to who about exactly. And so it was nice to have that information jotted down. And so I guess that leads me into the showcase itself. And so it was Thursday and Friday from 12 to 4. And you dress to impress. So I had my business professional on the top, hair done, makeup done, like a whole nine yards. I was ready to go. And the way it works is once you enter the lobby, you have an opportunity to look at all the different schools. And so you can enter each of their individual lobbies and from there opt to chat with someone. And so once you click the chat button, someone has the opportunity on the other side, whether it be a residency director or a resident, a PGY1 or PGY2, to invite you to a chat. And so the first chat that they invite you to is a text chat. And from there, they usually ask if you were okay with video chatting. And so I always said yes. For me personally, I enjoy video chatting a lot more. It offers the opportunity to build a rapport with the person. I feel like the conversation flows a lot more smoothly. Um, It gives you the chance also to attach a name to a face, to also learn a lot about other things that you may not have known about because it offers the other person the opportunity to talk a little bit more about their experiences and whatnot. And so I always opted for a video chat and they stopped started not stopped they started at five minutes and the person controlling the chat has the opportunity to extend it by two five or ten minutes so i think that's a really cool function as well if the conversation is flowing and there's more to talk about you can go ahead and extend it which i thought was really great Um, and i entered the residency showcase quite early like by quite early i mean like literally at 12 o'clock i was in there just because i wanted to have the opportunity to speak to all the programs i was interested in But something that I started to notice as time went on was that the waiting lines for each of these different programs would get longer and longer. And so something I recommend and something I was able to do early on was enter the chat for like two to three different programs. And when they're available, they'll end up pulling you. And I was only comfortable doing like two to three at a time because I knew if I did like five or six and suddenly everyone's trying to like pull you in. I don't know exactly what happens per se, but it felt like a lot to do back to back to back. So I tried to limit it to two to three. Um, And then when the opportunity arises, when someone becomes available from a program, it'll end up pulling you into that same text chat like I mentioned. And something to be very cognizant of is it won't tell you what the program is that you've been pulled into, but it'll give you a name. So you have to quickly scan the screen to figure out what program you're talking to, uh, which of course is very beneficial when you start asking questions because you want your questions to be program specific. Um, So I thought it was really great to have a lot of different, not a lot, but a good number of places that I was holding myself in line for. As far as asking questions go, as I was compiling my residency Excel sheet together, I was taking a look at all the different programs and looking at what types of electives I was interested in, programs I wanted to know more about, asking about teaching certificates, precepting opportunities, um, what it's like to be a resident at these places, always making sure to ask questions that I couldn't find the answer to on their website because they have the website with that information so that you don't ask those questions and the opportunity that you get to speak to someone face to face. So again, I really enjoyed talking to both residency directors as well as residents. I thought it offered a great um, overview as to what the program looked like from different perspectives. So you don't get to pick who you talk to. So I think that's also kind of really cool. It's kind of a toss up. Um, It can be very nerve wracking at the beginning. I was sitting in my room and I'm like sweating high key because it's so hot um, in NorCal right now. But 
it was a really great opportunity to practice networking, especially um, in this new medium of Zoom calls, video calls, video chats and stuff like that, because it seems like a lot of this is going to be like that moving forward. And so it was a good practice round. It was good to test this whole thing out. And even with just talking with residents and program directors, trying to figure out and get a better idea of what each program is like was a great opportunity because this is my last year of pharmacy school. This is really when I'm going to be applying to residencies. I really want to get a better understanding of what I'm potentially entering into in a year from now, which is very exciting to think about. And so I was really thankful to everyone who took the chance and time to talk to me because I definitely learned a lot. There was a lot of information that I would not have learned otherwise had I not gone and spoken to them or had the opportunity to text chat with them, which was something that also worked out very well. My personal preference is video chat, but the texting option, which was basically just messaging one another, worked really great as well because I still had questions and so you can ask them and it allows them to just answer back and you have a written record of what the answer is. So that worked out really well. And that was basically how I went about it. I think each day I had like five to six that I tried to attend. Uh, some were really busy, especially as the day went on. I know UC Davis in particular. I think I tried to enter on both days into their lobby and there was 60 people in front of me on Thursday. And then they were again they were there again on Friday and I wanted to see if I could talk to anyone. And I think there were 100 people in front of me. So that one was definitely a little bit harder to... Uh, get an opportunity to talk to someone with, but I ended up still putting my name down on their information sheet. So almost all of these different programs have a sign in sheet if you'd like more information. And so you just go ahead and make sure that you do that for each one that you're in. It'll usually be on the front page of uh, their lobby screen. So just take a look at that. And make sure you put your information down because they'll email you uh, in the days following with information about open houses, about how to stay up to date about all of their residency information and things like that, which is really useful. And then from there, I sent my thank yous and that basically summed up the rest of my week off. That was the biggest thing that took up time for me. Um, of course, it was a really great opportunity, as I've said a bajillion times already, but I'm really glad that I participated. A couple of friends and I did it and we were just talking about it after the fact and how unique of an experience it is to go through this and see the way that things are now. And so it'll be interesting moving forward, navigating the same type of scenario. But on top of that, the other thing that I did last week was I tuned into the CSHP Emergency Medicine Seminar. So CSHP offered a free seminar for, I believe, well, at least for student members at the very least, which I am. So that worked out. It was an hour long talk by an emergency medicine pharmacist just about the role of an ED pharmacist, where they where they can make interventions, uh, especially in stroke. Pharmacists play a huge role, of course, with Alteplace in figuring out whether or not patients are part of the inclusion criteria or exclusion criteria, figuring out dosing, at the same time dealing with antibiotics, so moving from a broad spectrum um, agent to a more narrow one in the event that cultures come back. So there's a lot going on there and just figuring out how pharmacists play um, a role in this setting I thought was quite unique. It's something I'm very interested in. I do have my emergency department rotation coming up next. So it was just something I was really intrigued by. And as I mentioned previously, I've had experience in my hospital operations rotation. So I just wanted to see what it was all about, learn a little bit more about where this particular position in pharmacy is going in the future, since emergency medicine pharmacists aren't exactly ubiquitous. They're not in every hospital yet, and not every hospital has 
um, an ED with a trauma center and all these different things. So just a great talk to learn a little bit more. Of course, there's a lot of information out there and I just want to do my due diligence and just doing as much research as I can into perspective paths for myself in the future. But that basically wraps up my week off again. Definitely had a lot more going on than I anticipated, which is totally fine. It actually helped a lot to have something to do because I was just getting used to, you know, waking up, having a schedule, doing something, coming home. Um, But yeah, really relaxing in one regard, but at the same time, it was cool having the opportunity to partake in all these different activities. So with that, we'll go ahead and get into what my ICU rotation looks like. Welcome back everyone to another week at Life on the Farm. It feels like it's been forever since I last talked to y'all, but it's only been about two weeks. I had last week off from rotations and I actually didn't record an episode because I thought it would be really chill, nothing too exciting to share. I kind of talked about what I was going to do, but then Loki, it kind of picked up. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about what I had going on. I attended an emergency medicine seminar as well as the Loma Linda Southern California Residency Showcase. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about both of those, especially in this era of virtual meetings and just doing everything online, kind of talk about my experience and what I took away from it. At the same time, the most exciting part I feel like in the past two weeks was starting my ICU rotation on Monday. So I am now officially in my second block of my API rotations. It was originally supposed to be internal medicine, and this technically fulfills my internal medicine requirement. But like I've mentioned before, because of everything having to do with COVID and whatnot, some things got moved around. But I am very excited to be there. I've had an amazing week thus far. I'll definitely talk a little bit more about what I've seen, what I've been doing, of course. And these episodes compared to my previous block when I was recording then will definitely be structured a lot differently just because my everyday routine looks just about the same. But what I do throughout the week and some of the big takeaways and the disease states and Um, Things like that that I learn about will definitely be very different. So it'll take a different structure and I'm kind of working with it as I move forward. So it's a learning curve for both of us. We'll see how it works out. And then from there, I guess it's time to talk about the title as I always do. I would not forget. Don't worry. And so it's You See Me and I See You. And basically it was just a playoff of the whole doing video chats for residency showcases and having all of these different things online while at the same time starting my ICU rotation. So I thought it'd be something fun. I'm definitely looking forward to sharing with you all what I've been up to. It's been crazy, but in the best way possible. So without further ado, let's get into it. Alrighty, so let's start talking about my ICU rotation. So this is block two. It is my internal medicine technically rotation or it fulfills that requirement and I am on from 0700 to 1730 Monday through Friday. The ICU is decentralized so the pharmacist sits on the floor and is easily accessible by the physician, nurses, uh, physical therapists, respiratory therapists, uh, dietitians, social workers, everyone. It offers this opportunity to answer questions quickly and effectively and mitigate any sort of small nuances right there and without having to call down to the main pharmacy. There are two ICUs and there's one pharmacist in each. There are 12 beds per ICU and of course that then means that there's one pharmacist managing 12 patients. 
And so with that, they tend to, they not only work up the patients every day, go on rounds, but also help to check off the orders from the ICUs in particular to help alleviate um, work for the main pharmacy, which makes sense because a lot of those orders put in are either put in by the pharmacist themselves during rounds or the physician mentions it during rounds and puts it in and you can verify it right then and there. As far as the rotation goes for me, there are objectives laid out at the beginning as there are with every rotation, but something unique to this particular one is that there's a progression that my preceptor put into place as far as what different end goals I should be meeting at the end of every week. So I thought that was really nice. It offers you the opportunity to see where you should be at, check in with yourself, and at the same time making sure that you're meeting these marks. And so things like how many patients you should be following, tasks like keeping up with TPNs, doing vanco dosing and whatnot, those are all a part of that progression, making sure that you're moving forward. So like, for example, the first week is to follow one to two patients, uh, learn how to do TPNs. And so from there, making sure that by the end of the week, I'm able to meet that requirement, which fortunately I was able to. I learned how to do TPNs. I'm managing them on my own and checking with my preceptor and I follow nine patients. So I'm at two thirds of a team right now, which I'm pretty proud of. As far as my daily schedule goes, the first thing that the pharmacist and I do when we come in is check everyone's blood glucose. So patients in the ICU, whether or not they're diabetic, they ha are taking steroids, uh, their bodies are under a lot of stress right now, especially if they undergo a surgery and whatnot. And so their blood glucose tends to fluctuate a lot, especially we're seeing with COVID patients, they can be very hard to manage. And so in that case, we wanna make sure for all of our patients that they're within the goal of 140 to 180. We want to make sure we're avoiding hypoglycemic events, so making sure patients don't fall under 70. And of course, we're trying to stay beneath that 180 level, so we don't want to see any hyperglycemia. And so when we start to see those things, we want to make corrections. And so patients tend to be hyperglycemic in this case, so they have elevated blood glucose levels. So they can be placed on a bolus basal type of situation, so they're given uh, nutritional and correctional on a sliding scale. They could also have Lantus added onto that if they need it for their baseline coverage. And in the case of some of these patients where we're finding it really hard to manage their blood glucose with the Lantus and the Lispro and whatnot, we actually end up putting them on an insulin drip. And so they are in the process of developing a critical care um, insulin drip algorithm. So it's waiting to be approved. But the way that it works is that patients are placed under different treatment level algorithms. And based off their blood glucose reading every hour, they end up either moving up, down, stay within their level, and then the appropriate amount is given based off the chart. So there's a whole protocol written out about it. And nurses are actually the one that track that. But pharmacy does play a big role in the insulin drip situation because we tend to collaborate with one another which I find a really cool aspect of this whole thing is being able to work in real time with one another and then of course any of the Lantus um, or Humalog any of the short-acting insulin and as well as the long-acting pharmacists are the ones who dose and so communicating with the nurses about what changes you're making as well as having the nurse in these patients who you're seeing a big fluctuation communicate back to you about what they're seeing is so crucial and I think again I love that interprofessionalism and it's been great this week being able to have exposure to that. At the same time let's see after we work up patients at about 10 o'clock 
is when rounds start. So the physicians there, med student, the nurses for each room, respiratory therapists are there for basically every patient because in the ICU, uh, we tend to have a lot of patients that are intubated who are on a mechanical vent, um, especially with COVID. So they are there on rounds as well. We have dietitians, we have social work. This is really just an opportunity for everyone that is taking care of the patient to meet up, touch base, talk about things that we have comments, questions, or concerns about, and how are we going to address some of the barriers perhaps that we have to patients being discharged or being downgraded. So again, a great opportunity to kind of hear what everybody's expertise is in their field, what they bring to the table, and kind of work together to problem solve, which I find to be one of the best parts about being in acute care and especially in this setting. And then throughout rounds, it basically goes patient by patient. The nurse that's taking care of that patient talks about them or the med student does um, different respiratory therapists, depending. And so basically the mainstays are the pharmacist and the physician. And so it's just depending on who's taking care of the patients is who's presenting about them and making any of the recommendations that we have as far as changes to therapy, uh, de-escalating antibiotics, switching from IV to PO, adding something that may be missing, what have you. It's basically anything that we want to recommend that we saw during our workup that we thought should be changed. After doing that, the pharmacist throughout rounds is also anytime the physician is putting in orders or even if the pharmacist themselves is putting in an order, verifying it as they're moving through. So again, alleviating any extra work for the downstairs pharmacy, um, just taking care of things on their own. It helps to kind of work within the space that you're at because then you know everything that's going on. It's good to go. You've made your clinical decision and whatnot. After rounds, we actually work on the TPN. So pharmacists here are responsible for that. They work in conjunction with the dietitians, which I think is really great. So the dietitians are the one who put in the amount of dextrose and amino acids, the amount of lipids, which is standardized here, as well as what the total kilocalories should be for the patient during the day. And basically our biggest point is to figure out the micronutrient aspect. So we take a look at all of the different electrolytes for the patient. So their sodium, their chloride, their potassium, their calcium, their phosphorus, their magnesium, we look at what they've been replenished with throughout the day and so we want to make a decision on how much we either want to increase or decrease the amount of those micronutrients in the bag uh, also being cognizant of the fact that calcium and phosphorus actually precipitate and so we want to make sure we look at that curve and we're falling beneath it that way we don't run the risk of those two precipitating because that would be not helpful to anyone so that's been a really cool experience. Uh, by the end of the week now, I've been able to evaluate all the patients, make my recommendations, type my notes, and then I just run through it with the pharmacist to double check because as I've mentioned previously, the TPNs are outsourced and so they have to do it through another portal that I don't have a login for. And something that was also cool that I learned about, there's actually two different types of TPNs that I was taught about. And so there's a two in one, which involves your dextrose and your amino acid being in one bag and your lipids being separate, which is what this institution uses versus a three in one. And so that includes all of your dextrose amino acid and the lipids inside the bag. So that tends to be that milkier color. And it was really great because during this week, before I even got to this point, my preceptor actually did a presentation for me about TPNs. 
And so from her, I was able to learn a lot about enteral versus parenteral nutrition. And so enteral be through the gut, whereas parenteral is through the veins. And so enteral is the preferred method. If the gut works, you want to use it. Uh, it's much simpler, it's much cheaper, and you tend to have fewer complications. Um, in the case of parenteral nutrition, while it does reliably deliver the patient's needs, it is much more expensive and it does open up the patient to a lot more complications. Indications for TPN include non-functional or an accessible GI tract, NPO or inadequate enteral need, so they're getting less than 60% of their caloric needs met for more than 7 to 10 days. They have a high output fistula, they have a malabsorption condition like short bowel syndrome, um, and then a lot of critically ill patients have a high nutritional need, and so they are also candidates for TPN at the same time. But like I mentioned, once we go through and input all of that, we are good to go. And that leads us to lunch. And by the time that we come back, basically the afternoon is spent charting all of the interventions that were made, any changes that we made during rounds, checking in on our glucose again, answering any questions that we get. Um, and then for me personally, something that I do every afternoon with the preceptor is a patient presentation. And so this is a great opportunity to practice my soap note um, workflow and so I go ahead and pick one of my patients ideally somebody with a really interesting disease state that I've had the opportunity to look into figure out what their optimal therapy is make evaluations and recommendations about what's being done right now and I am able to go ahead and give a formal presentation to my preceptor so that's been really great because it offers me the opportunity to work on being able to soap up a patient fully because when I work up my patients in the morning I just tend to go over whatever recommendations I have it does vary by preceptor what they're looking for and so I'm glad that we have that opportunity to quickly run through my ideas in the morning and then have an opportunity to sit down and flesh out one of our patients uh, together. After doing that, two to three times a week, I actually have topic discussions. And so I find these to be really valuable. It's an opportunity to look closer at a disease state and really become familiar with the treatment algorithms and understanding the pathophysiology behind it and how we manage it inpatient, as well as how are we transitioning outpatient. And so I don't have handouts to create with these, um, and so it's quite informal. I look up all of the information, I do a quick presentation on my own, and from there my preceptor and I have a conversation about the topic, things to look up, questions that she asks, and so making sure that I write those down so I can get back to her with any answers. And that's been, honestly, I found a really great way to break down all of this material. I think it's so easy to get caught up in wanting to learn everything at once, and maybe that just might be me, but I found this to be a lot more digestible in giving me these smaller tasks to do every day as far as these topic discussions go, because you see a lot of the same things in the ICU, and they tend to be bread and butter critical care types of things. So our first one was acute myocardial infarction, the next one was acute ischemic stroke, and the next week I have a lot of um, antibiotic uh, infectious disease related topics like CAP and HAP, VAP, so that's the community acquired pneumonia, hospital acquired pneumonia, ventilator acquired pneumonia. I have UTIs and pyelonephritis, which we also see quite often, and then I think my third topic for next week is cellulitis and diabetic foot, infe diabetic foot infections. So again, a great way to take a closer look at all of those without being too overwhelmed and trying to learn everything about, let's say, infectious disease all at once, but it really breaks everything down. So I'm thankful for that opportunity.
throughout the rest of the afternoon, um, looking at Vanco levels, dosing Vanco, um, asking any questions I may have that are following up from earlier and whatnot. So again, I'm having a great time. I really genuinely do love acute care. And so this has been an amazing opportunity to practice real time. These are all real people, of course, and to check my clinical knowledge. And I think above all, really strengthen it. I have a good foundation from the first two years of pharmacy school, but they mean it when they say that you really can't do this without having real world experience. So again, it's been really fun. I could not ask for a better type of internal medicine ICU experience. So that wraps up that. So moving on, I wanted to talk about some of the interesting cases that I've had the opportunity to take a look at, some of those disease states, things my preceptor has brought to my attention that are popular in the ICU, a lot of what chief complaints patients have that land them in the ICU itself. And so just to give a little bit of background, Patients in the ICU end up there in one of two ways. They were either on the floor, and so that means a different medical floor, whether that be plain medical, med surge, telemetry, oncology, and they ended up having some sort of situation arise, uh, let's say uncontrollable seizures or whatnot, that then required them to be escalated in their level of care, so they're upgraded to the ICU. So that's one way, and the second way is straight out of the emergency department. And I'd say nine times out of 10, that tends to be where we see patients come from. You'll hear on the overhead that there's a trauma coming in or a stroke coming in and things like that into the ED. And within, I'd say, two hours after that, they're admitted to the ICU. So you have a pretty good idea of what's going to come. Every now and then there is a small group, I guess I did leave this out, of patients who end up going to the OR and then come out and need to be watched very critically uh, or closely because they are critical. And so that's another subsection of the patients that we end up seeing on our floor. As far as disease states go, we see things from hip fractures to uh, knee replacements to strokes to COVID has been quite popular these days. Patients do end up here. We have a number of them on the floor at a time and so that requires PPE as we all know and setting up isolation rooms and whatnot and so it's been interesting to follow them. Patients with subdural hematomas, uh, suspected meningitis, we see overdoses, we see end stemmies and stemmies, we see chronic heart failure patients, we see every type of situation where a patient needs to be watched very carefully. Um, an interesting disease state I learned about this past week was mesenteric ischemia. And so I had never heard of this previously, and it's quite catastrophic that if a patient ends up throwing a clot and it gets lodged in the mesenteric artery, it cuts off blood flow to your small and your large intestine. And the deterioration of your organs, both your small intestine and your large intestine, is so fast, and it ends up being quite fatal. And many patients don't make it, especially if it isn't caught in time. Um, you tend to look for it in patients with a heart condition who have known to clot and whatnot. But again, it can be, it's very sad, very unfortunate, but an interesting disease state to learn about that it, that occurs because we don't really talk about that when it comes to uh, clots forming and some of the catastrophic events that can happen downstream because of that. But again, as I go through, I'll start to see more and more different types of disease states and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's been really interesting because there's a lot that happens, but it's just 
it's taking it all in at once. I feel like when I was on internal med, I would see a lot of patients with a history of MI and CHF, but they're in a lot more of a stable state. They're just experiencing a mild exacerbation, so they don't need to be watched as closely. But the ICU is such a different ball game. There's so much happening and it ebbs and it flows so incredibly much because sometimes you have six patients and you have six empty beds and then all of a sudden you have every ED trauma that comes in that day end up filling your beds and so you're suddenly really busy or you leave for lunch and you come back and that patient that you were just like rounding on earlier is suddenly like having a thoracotomy done and having a tube placed and it's it's very quick and rapid and things change on a daily basis but it's also super interesting for that reason and I think a really great learning environment because it is such a high acuity situation and environment. And that kind of is the perfect segue into what it's like being in the ICU itself. And I think I mentioned it earlier, but being in the ICU, at least this first week, has been so much more about understanding the workflow and what is happening when and where than it has been about the drugs. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's 100% about the drugs. That has been its own learning curve in itself. But there's so much that happens in the ICU that you don't think about, or at least I hadn't realized before going into it. So a lot of these patients, as I've mentioned before, are intubated, um, are on ventilators, uh, all these different types of things. And so you see chlorhexidine on their medication list as something to help reduce the risk of hospital-acquired or ventilator-associated pneumonia. A lot of these patients are sedated, and so they may be using propofol for that. But something to look out for with propofol is you don't want their triglycerides exceed 400. So you can switch to something else like Presidex, but then also being privy to the fact that Presidex can actually increase your temperature and so cause you to have what appears to be a fever. And when you're in the ICU and you're trying to manage patients who have infections, especially those who come in with sepsis. And for those who don't know, sepsis is a life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. And so one of the things that indicates when patients have an infection is a fever. And so that could muddle all of that decision making and so we want to be privy to that type of information which has been really interesting to learn about and while a lot of the vent stuff doesn't necessarily have to do with pharmacy it's just been interesting managing patients who are on events so I thought that was just information I thought I would share and so patients again as I've mentioned are in the ICU because they need to be closely monitored and they're actually checked on at a very minimum once an hour if not every single person way more than that and so the nurses are going in and out and things and so one of the biggest takeaways I've had during this experience and that I've known previously but really getting to work in this environment has taught me that and reinforced the idea so much more is that nurses are your best friends and they absolutely are the best source of information if you ever have questions about a patient you can go to them and they will know the answers and so get to know the nurses on your floor. And I feel like I've been trying to establish relationships during this first week. It's really helpful because when you walk in, there's a board put up with all of the room numbers, patient's last name, the nurse assigned to them. And so you're able to, maybe you haven't met them right away, but if you have a question for them or if they come talk to you, you it like opens up the opportunity to get to know them a little bit quicker because you will be working together. Um, the board is actually really cool too because if you come in the next day and one of your patients has is no longer in the ICU, it actually lets you know their disposition, so where they're at, whether they've been downgraded, they went home, um, if they have passed away, whatever it may be, it's actually on there so you can keep up with where your patients are next. 
I also have discovered how important it is to find ways to help your nurses. They are so busy. They are the ones going in and out of patient rooms and whatnot, especially those who have COVID patients. It is incredibly difficult to keep going in and out and having to completely don your PPE and then come out and take it all off, wipe down everything. So if we can find ways to schedule dosings that work for the patient as well as the nurse, why not do that? And so we try to also avoid scheduling labs and drug doses at shift change time. So being privy to that information also helps a lot, like levels for Vanco and our anti-epileptics, like our phosphatidone and whatnot, valproic acid. We don't want to be pulling levels when they're doing shift changes because they're debriefing one another. They're busy. We want to try and figure out a way to mitigate that and work around them. We also want, like I mentioned with COVID patients, they're going in and out, um, a lot already. And so if we can cut down the number of times they do that by scheduling things together, if appropriate, why not go ahead and do that as well? Uh, As I've mentioned, they're a wealth of knowledge. And so let's say a patient's blood glucose is all over the place and it's been managed just fine. And you're having a hard time figuring out where to go next, what's going on, trying to get a better picture for what this is. Talk to the to the nurse, figure out where the blood was drawn from. If they did a lab value, figure out, um, is the patient eating their entire meal? Are they eating hundred percent the day previously? And then today they only ate 50%, but you're giving them the same insulin. So they're going to dip a little bit, but let's say that they ate 50% yesterday and now they're eating hundred percent today. So now you're not able to cover it fully, but being able to talk to the nurses and find out that information can help make decisions that much easier without having to take a shot in the dark. Another really great thing you can collaborate with them about is figuring out when you're doing your Vanco dosing. Let's say you need to initiate Vanco on a patient whose serum creatinine is elevated at the moment. They're experiencing AKI. It's trending downwards, though. Um, The patient needs the coverage from MRSA and whatnot. Uh, Go talk to your nurse. Find out the ins and outs. Figure out what their urine output is. Is it within normal? Do we feel comfortable moving forward with our plan? go talk to them. I think another important way to build relationships is to include them in your decision making because they are a valuable source of information. I cannot stress it enough. I think another thing that came up was problem solving with them, collaborating. I have found such value in interprofessional work. I know that at UCSF, we stress it a lot. We, I think we do an IPE, like an interprofessional exercise once, like every six months or something like that. I could have that totally wrong. I totally don't remember. And we do these practice cases, but truly when you get out there in the real world, it is so awesome to be able to collaborate with others, talk about things, run your recommendations by one another, answer questions, be a source of knowledge, but also to learn from others, I think is so, so invaluable. So yeah, that's been one of the cool things that I've learned about and something too that has been ingrained in my mind and I will never forget for the rest of my life is that a lot of patients in the ICU have sepsis as part of their Uh, diagnosis, which makes sense. And so they also tend to have low albumin. And when looking at their labs, make sure that you're using the corrected calcium equation when you're looking at their calcium. So patients may look like they have a calcium that's below normal, but because they're low albumin, you're going to want to go ahead and use the corrected calcium equation. And you'll then be able to figure out whether or not they truly have hypocalcemia or not. And so the equation for those who are curious, because I've now committed it to memory and don't even no online calculator for me, absolutely not. It's your calcium level plus 80% of four minus your albumin level. So for any of you going on rotations or whatever, whatnot, just know that equation, know that it exists and know that your calcium is dependent on your albumin levels. Just a little 
tip I thought I'd share. And something I wanted to talk about in this episode that I don't think I've ever really mentioned previously, but as time has gone on and I've talked to my own friends about their experiences, had my first direct patient care rotation start, and just seeing other students at other pharmacy schools go on their rotations is just how big of a learning curve there is going from being a pharmacy student with your didactic experiences to being an appy student on rotations. I mean, I never really talked about it much during hospital operations, if at all, mainly because I was more concerned with just reorienting to the real world again after four months in quarantine. But something that we don't talk about a lot is just how do we make that adjustment from being a student where you go to classes, you have exams, uh, worried about things in that realm to now basically working um, eight to 10 hours a day depending and going from learning all of this information to then applying it and building off from it. And so I feel like I talk about things in a really positive manner and it's because I consider myself a pretty positive person and any way that I've portrayed my experiences is genuinely the way I feel about them. But that isn't to say that they aren't overwhelming, that it's an adjustment in itself, that I think the phrase is a drinking water from a fire hose. It's a lot of information and it can be very overwhelming and you can also feel down about things that's so so okay this experience isn't like anything else I feel like most of us have ever been a part of and so while I talk about these things like I'm jazzed about them all the time I love them it's because it's true but because I also really like high pressure environments I feel like I thrive in them I really like hectic workplaces where I have to multitask, um, high acuity situations, the environment's very fast paced. I live for that. It energizes me and motivates me. It makes me push myself further, everything like that. And so when I talk about these things, it's with my own perspective of what suits me and my personality and the type of work experience that I'm looking for, the type of life that I really enjoy living. And so I just wanted to level with y'all a little bit about what the reality of the situation is, is that it works for me. I really like it. But again, I think it also goes back to not comparing yourself to others. I never want to take away from other people's experiences and how they feel because it is a lot. Appies are a lot. And however you deal with that type of environment is totally valid and I think I guess to just shed light on my own experiences is over the years it's taken a lot of internal work to get to the point where I am now and I feel like for me I very much put a positive spin on everything as often as I can. That's not to say that I don't get down about things. That's totally, totally valid. I think a great example of that would be I definitely came in hot on the first day. I was like, I'm going to do everything. I'm going to know all the answers, blah, 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 what have you. Clearly not the case. Um, But I think in that situation, being able to readjust my expectations and accept that as an a success in being able to evaluate where I am realistically and not consider that a failure has been something that's helped with this positive attitude. At the same time, I've always, I think my whole life, who likes being uncomfortable? Who doesn't like knowing the answer? And so for me, my comfort zone is I like knowing the answer. And it's taken a lot of looking inside of myself to become okay with the idea that I'm going to be uncomfortable sometimes. And to be honest, on appies, probably most of the time, but to learn to like that feeling, to understand that being in that space means that I'm growing. And so for me, 
being able to put myself there more often, kind of desensitizing myself to kind of the gross feeling that I used to get about it and instead see in the bigger picture how this is going to make me better has then pushed me to want to be there more often. And so something I was going to bring up about this, I know I'm rambling, is that something on rotations that I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with and even to this day as I'm speaking right now, I'm not super comfortable with it is not knowing the answer is okay. It's going to feel weird and it's going to feel bad and it's going to feel like, what did I even learn in pharmacy school? I should not be here. But honestly, one of the biggest ways I've been able to take this and make it into a positive is that this is one of the best ways I'm going to learn and retain this information. Because being put on the spot, it's not a fun feeling, right? I think as much as I want to say that even I like to quote unquote be uncomfortable and whatnot, it's not fun being put on the spot and not knowing the answer. And so when you're continuously being put in that position, you start to, of course, grow with it. You start to, you know, feel it out a little bit, but it allowed me the opportunity to apply something I usually do in the real world anyway, is what am I going to do next? How am I going to find a way to become better at handling these situations? And so I immediately turned to my phrase of, I don't know the answer off the top of my head. Let me look into that and I'll get back to you. And that served me well. I'm one of those people, I think there's two ways you can address questions, Um, look it up right away and get back to the person. I like doing that just because it helps me cross things off in my head as I'm working through them. But also if you want to, take the time, write down all these notes, take on your own time the opportunity to look them all up and then get back to your precept or whatever works for you. But just in that exercise of doing that, you're going to learn so much and retain so much of that information and at the very least at least know where to turn to because I think another adjustment that we have to make going from pharmacy student to appy student is that you tend to turn to guidelines a lot and when you're in pharmacy school your lecture notes are awesome they're the way that you're going to learn the basics of the drugs where their place in therapy is what they do have a really good foundation with that and really stick to that because that is your goal in pharmacy school is to know the drugs. But when you do get into the clinical world and then practicing and whatnot, it's really about the application. And so that's an adjustment in itself. I really liked it just because it gives me the opportunity, again, just to keep building toward my end goal. I want to be a great pharmacist. And so I find it to be honestly something I'm growing with as well but having Lexicomp open at all times having up-to-date open just getting more comfortable every day so yeah that was just a really long-winded way of saying don't compare yourself to me if you feel like I'm super positive it's because a I am but b because I want this experience to really push me and I found that that environment works for me and I found ways that even when I catch myself feeling not the best about things that I'm able to identify it and move forward from it and I always always fall back to that because I could sit there and I can dwell in it or I can turn it around figure out what am I going to do next about it so that was just a little bit I wanted to share about that it's not to tell you how to do anything of course but to also be gentle with yourself these things take time to get used to especially in the middle of a pandemic and all the social issues in this world and California is on fire and voter suppression and like literally can't keep up honestly but guess what get comfortable being uncomfortable right and finding ways to grow from these situations and try to make things better but yeah besides that the only other learning curve I wanted to give and talk about or not give but yeah just talk about 
is antibiotics. So if you have not taken infectious disease yet, whatever, I just wanted to share this piece of information. Know your antibiotics, know your spectrum of activity. From there, figure out which bugs are associated with which disease states, and then it'll make it much easier to figure out which antibiotics are in play based off those common pathogens. And then it'll be much easier for you to digest the treatment algorithms because you'll have that connection being made already. Just thought it's something I'd share because I am having such a fun time right now with my antibiotics and I thought that this information could potentially help someone. So take that with a grain of salt or what have you. And on that note, I wanted to say thank you all so much again for taking the time to listen to this podcast. Quick weekend update. I'm going to go ahead and finish up my topic discussions for the coming week. I, again, use the guidelines, RX prep, my lecture notes, use all that material, put it together, kind of make sure it makes sense in my own head. I also have a journal club that I'm doing for my midpoint presentation, so I'm starting to take a look at that. I can talk about that a little bit more when it gets closer to the time. And if you follow me on Instagram, I posted about laminating my antibiotic flower diagrams, and it got a lot of traction. I was surprised. I didn't know so many people were so into it. But yeah, if you go to UCSF and you know Conan, you know about his flower diagrams, and I 20 out of 10 recommend consolidating them all into one piece I laminated it because I'm extra and also because I take it with me in the hospital I want to be able to wipe it down when I come home and use it for my own studying purposes but a great tool highly recommend and on that note although I've already said this part about ending things again thank you all so much I hope you and your loved ones are staying safe and healthy wearing a mask and be kind to one another but I'll talk to you all soon bye (music) 